Welcome back into the Garage, the Garage Talk podcast, and this is episode 18. Our guest is Shane Bishop, and he is producer for Dateline on NBC. Is that the correct title, or is it executive producer? No, it's national producer. But even, even better. That sounds good. That sounds bigger, because national is... I'm holding my arms out wide. But. It's far smaller. Well, there you go. Grew up in a small town in Montana. You live here in Southern Oregon, which we'll get to that a little bit later on, but I like to, first of all, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. You know, I'm uh, excited to have you over here and uh, asked you a while ago, and I really appreciate you carving out some time to make it happen. Uh, let's start from the beginning with you in small town Montana. Now, I actually had to do some research. I know I've seen you post about being from a small town before, but I didn't know exactly how small. So I had to look and see if it was bigger or smaller than Glendale, Oregon, where I'm from. It's actually a little bit bigger. 3,000-ish. I think you're almost down to 2,500, according to the 2018 census, I think. So like many small towns in America, it seems to be shrinking a bit. But Conrad, Montana, is that right? That is. I don't get back there much anymore since my parents are gone, but... We still have a 1,200-acre wheat farm just east of there. Your family does? My grandfather homesteaded from Virginia in 1916. Did you have to work on that farm when you were growing up? That, was a, that was a big disappointment to everybody involved really? in farming. <laughs> I think my usual, my dad, my dad was a, he's a saddle bronc rider, helped start the Montana State University rodeo team. And my standard response to him when he wanted me to do anything on the farm was, I'm going to go inside and write a poem. And it worked. Well, it worked out okay. I, I, I knew what my strengths were at a very young age. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's definitely not for everyone. I was talking to my grandpa when he was in here because we grew up on a, a smaller farm and Buck and Hay learned a lot of great lessons out there, but it's definitely not for everyone. I know that there was, you know, some of the football players over the years that would come out and Buck Hay or attempt to Buck Hay. And that's something that you, believe it or not, have to learn how to do properly if you're going to be effective at it. And it definitely wasn't for all of them, especially some of the meatheads that thought they were pretty tough. I have a lot of memories of bucking bales when I was younger and also uh, moving irrigation pipe uh, when I was in high school. That was my, I guess my first job was moving sprinkler pipe in the afternoons. Yeah, I was lucky to not have to do too much of that because we didn't have sprinkler pipe at the time. And I think now they have some kind of automated fancy system, which sounds more like my style, but my buddies that had to move sprinkler pipe, that was not their favorite thing to do at all. I remember doing it in between two a days on football practice. Go to football in the morning, move sprinkler pipe in the afternoon, take a nap, go back to football practice and repeat for a couple of weeks. That was, that was a few years in high school. Yeah. So growing up out there, what was it like for you? Oh, it was great. I mean, uh, my wife went there the first time uh, and, and said, you grew up in Mayberry. And I really did. I mean, it was just a idyllic little town. My dad worked for the government. My mom stayed home. We had that farm out outside of town that was kind of like Disneyland. And, uh, you know, you got to do everything. It was safe. You could go out. My mom would turn the porch light on at 9 or 10 when she wanted you home. and um, You got to do everything. You played baseball, basketball, football. You were in all the plays. You were in the musicals. You, <laughs> you did everything. Yeah, there's something to be said for that, too. My wife and I were talking recently about our daughter tried out for softball, and it was really weird being in a – and to us, this is a big town compared to Glendale, a town of 700 where, like the town you grew up in, you got to play the sports, or at least you got to try, and you probably made the team, even if Always. you sat at the end of the bench. Sure. So for our daughter, it was a whole different experience being in this town that's big on softball. And it was kind of a interesting thing to go through because she didn't make it, and it was – really only the second time she ever played, but was trying, you know, 11 years old. And it was, it was a lot different. And part of me for a second thought, man, you know, we can, we can move home and take care of this and that she'd get to play, which isn't the right answer. You want them to learn and continue to get better. But that is one of the great things about a small town is at least you get to try and find out sometimes in these big schools, you don't even really get a chance. It was a different world. And I mean, I mean, when I had baseball games, I would take my mitt, throw it on my bike and ride up to the game. My parents didn't come. They could care less. I mean, you know, we're at everything for our kids, right? Every soccer game, every basketball, football game or whatever. Yeah, I don't think my dad ever came to a baseball game unless it was after after work. Well, is that yeah. it because he was just busy at work and couldn't get off work to go or they, that just wasn't a thing? Oh, I mean, I was completely loved and supported in every way, but it just wasn't a thing. Like, I don't remember many parents coming to the baseball games. One of the parents was her coach, mm-hmm. but that was about it. It wasn't parents weren't helicoptering over the kids like they are now. 
Yeah, it is interesting. We were talking the other day about at what age do you get your kids a cell phone? And my mom, it was actually on a radio show, and my mom was texting me, oddly enough, ironic that she's communicating via phone, right, as I'm talking <laughs> on the air about at what age our kids should have a phone. And she said, yeah, well, don't you remember um, September 11th happened, and you got a phone a couple years before that, but then I decided your sister needed a phone, and, and, and. I'm like, yeah, and, 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 because we're scared. And it's fear. And I don't know where my kid is. And, you know, what if something happens? Right. And it's a lot of it is fear based, which I just find very interesting. And yeah, we want to know where they are. We want to know they're okay. But it is kind of interesting how back in those days you could, you could leave all day, you could play. There wasn't really this worry, but I don't know. Is there that many more threats out there or are we just that more aware of them? Well, we're more aware of them. I mean, the biggest thing that ever happened in my hometown was the rape and murder of a school teacher when I was 10 years old. And um, my neighbor two doors down, his dad was the defense attorney for the, for the guy who did it. His name was Duncan McKenzie. And kind of a shirt tail relative of mine was the sheriff. His name was Walt Hammermeister. And me and Great the, name for a sheriff. Yeah, Sheriff Walt. And we'd go down to the jail the defense lawyer's kid, Mark, and me, and we'd walk in to the Pondre County Jail and say, hey, Walt, can we go see Duke? And he'd go, all right, you guys, but just don't get too close to the bars, okay? So we'd go upstairs to the jail. We'd sit about 10 feet away from the bars, and it was like a, was like a Mayberry jail. It was like three cells. And Duncan McKenzie, this guy who was put to death in Montana 20 years later, um, would sit there and draw us pictures. And we'd say, Duke, draw us a picture of a truck. And he'd draw us a picture of a truck. And, you know, I don't even think I told my parents that I did that. I just think we just went home and did it again the next week and the next week and the next week. So you want to talk about an absence of fear. We'd, we had no idea what this guy had done. We knew it was bad. And we knew we shouldn't get too close to him. But that's... What made you guys decide to want to go down there? Do you remember how old were you? Because I, I know for me, I just visited the Jackson County Jail a couple of months ago. Even just last night when my kids were asking me about the jail over behind Walmart here in Grants Pass. And I was telling them, that's not a place you want to go. And explaining to them, trust me, I was just at the Jackson County Jail. I don't want to go back. They do a really good job running that place. I don't want to go back. So I don't know. How old were you? And I was 10. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. It just never occurred to me that I was in any, any kind of danger or that it was, it was wrong in any way. He was just a guy that, um, you know, my friend's dad was defending. So I almost had some kind of a personal connection to him and I didn't worry about it. I just sat there and I remember he was a great artist. He could draw trucks. Uh, I don't, I, I don't remember keeping them, uh, at all. Maybe Mark took him home. I didn't take him home because I didn't want to tell my parents what I was up to. But I'm pretty sure they knew because Walt Hammermeister was, I mean, it's a small town. People talked. I'm sure they knew that there were a couple of little boys, you know, going up to the jail to visit this, this horrendous. Yeah. <laughs> if it's anything like our small town, we'd get home and our parents would already know right. where we were before right. we even got there. And they knew how fast we were going and where we did the burnout and every little detail. So I'm sure they probably knew. I don't remember it ever being an issue or anything but yeah. you know sort of set a pattern for me at hanging out in prisons I guess yeah and I want to definitely touch on that a little bit later on but as you're going through school and through high school at what point did you decide you wanted to get into the entertainment and the TV and media business well I was always a good writer or thought I was but my school had a lot of uh, doctors uh, come out of it it was a real I mean, we, they were always held up in high school as a place where doctors came from Conrad, Montana, really small town, small huh? town. Yeah. And they took a lot of pride in that. So we were really forced, you know, or, you know, streamed toward taking math and science and biology and stuff like that. And when I was a junior or a senior, um, one of my English teachers took us to a TV station 60 miles away in great falls, Montana. And I was the producer. I was made the producer in charge of it. And I just liked it. So, I dropped all my math and science classes and took about six English classes and had every teacher come in and tell me how crazy I was, that it wasn't the right thing, that I was throwing my future away. And I did it anyway. And then I uh, went to the University of Montana and enrolled in journalism classes. How did you decide to go to the University of Montana? Did it just happen to be the college up the road or was there? <laughs> well, my dad asked me if I wanted to go to college and I said, yeah. And he said, then you can go to Missoula. That was my college search that easy yeah Take I had a sister. one sister lived already in missoula another one had just graduated from missoula so it just made sense it was fine with me i didn't i don't remember even 
thinking I should go anywhere else. Which works out nicely if you can go to the, you know, the hometown college and yeah. make that work out for you. And what was that like? It was four hours away. And, and Missoula is a, a lot like Ashland, Oregon. It's a very cool, very liberal town. And uh, I had all my buddies from the little small towns around Conrad that I'd played tennis and basketball and football against. And we all hung out together. And it was just great. It was, it was far enough from home, but close enough, too, I guess. And they had a great journalism school. Um, in fact, a, a professor came, uh, kind of changed my life uh, in my junior year. Um, he moved to Missoula from Chicago. His name was Joe Durso, and his dad was a writer for the New York Times, and he he was kind of a big deal in radio in Chicago at CBS. And uh, never forget, he called me in after class one day and said, I, wa I want to see you after class. And I thought, oh, great, you know, jigs up, right? And here's a guy who's going to tell me to find some other line of work. And he called me in and he said, you're really good at this and I'm going to show you how to do it. And before long, you're going to be telling people older than you how to do it. And, uh, you're going to be great at it. And I'm here to help you any way I can. So my life just kind of took off after that. And what grade were you in when that happened? Were you a senior? Or I think was it, was it, before a, I was, it was before I was a junior in college. So, so still a little bit of time left. Yeah. And he's telling you that already, which is great yeah. that somebody can spot something in you. Yeah. Um, and from there, where does your path lead you? Uh, I got an internship at the local station in Missoula and you know, it's small enough. It's, it's gotta be smaller than Medford. So after about four days, you know, of reporting, they say somebody called in sick and all of a sudden you're anchoring the news and you're 20 and a half years old or whatever. At the desk. Yeah. And your voice hasn't changed and you look like you're 10 <laughs> if you're me. But, uh, and that's nerve wracking. Yeah. I would think to just about anyone to get up there on the set to do the news. I know I've sat up there at Kobe a few times and they turn those bright lights on. I start sweating immediately. So for you, and that's not what you were going to do or were you thinking about doing that or cause you're I, doing some reporting. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was fun that my mom could see me. Um, but after that, I, I just wasn't a natural at it. You know, I've been around the block long enough now to see people who just they're just natural at it. And, and they have an interest in improving. They'll go on TV that night, they'll do a story and then they'll sit in the edit room and critique every part of there. And me, I just wanted to get out of there. <laughs> so the last thing I wanted to do was look at myself. So I did that for, I don't know, a couple of months and they hired me. So I worked as a reporter the last couple of years in Missoula. And then I just decided I want to go back East. And what I, did you want to do ultimately at that point? Well, I mean, I had somebody ask me not long ago, you know, I've been doing this 35 years now. Somebody said, did you, did you see yourself doing this back then? And I said, absolutely. I didn't know what it was, but I wanted to work with the best in the business. And I didn't know how I was going to get there, but I was going to give it a shot. Now, when you say you went back East, what'd you go there for? Was there an opening that you interviewed for? I or sent out, did you I, just take off and move out there? Oh, no. I sent about 30 tapes out to TV stations in... Pennsylvania, Maryland, you know, West Virginia, places that I thought would be a logical jump from Missoula, Montana. And I got a job in Altoona, Pennsylvania, which I think at the time was like market number 86 or something like that, which was a huge jump mm -hmm. from Missoula. And um, I was the city hall reporter there for about a year and a half. And then I moved to Harrisburg, PA, and got smart and moved behind the camera. Because I thought... I'm going to be 50 still in Altoona because I looked, I honestly, I looked like I was 15 and some consultant had come to Missoula and put some huge glasses on my face as if that would, you know, make me look older or whatever. And I just look ridiculous. That was the goal that was of the, the glasses yeah. was to make you not, not paint a beard or anything else. The pictures are ridiculous. <laughs> I They're think really, I saw one today yeah, when I was yeah. doing some research. Yeah. And, uh, so I did that and then I got smart and went behind the camera. And after that, you know, things kind of took off. Um, what was that transition like? What What are you doing behind the camera as opposed to in front of the camera? Because in front of the camera, I don't know a whole lot about reporting, but you're figuring out the facts, camera comes on, and you've got to present those facts. But behind the camera, it seems like it's a whole different setup. Well, when I applied for the job at uh, WHTM in Harrisburg, PA in 1988 or nine. The news director said to me, wait a minute, I've never met anybody who wanted to get off the air. Everybody wants to be on the air. And I just said, well, I'm a better writer. I'd rather, I'd rather do it. So when you're a reporter, you go out and you, gather, you, know, you interview people and you come back and you write the story. And that's really the one story. 
when you're the producer of the newscast, you got to have kind of a vision for the whole 30 minutes. So you decide what order things go and you write everything. You tell the, tell the weather guy, you got three minutes and he's mad at you cause he wants more. And you tell the sports guy, he's got four minutes and you know, it's just a, a much more, uh, complete job. The, the whole newscast is your responsibility. So is it the responsibility of those reporters to put their package together when you tell them they have three minutes or four minutes for the sports? How does that work? Oh, well, with weather and sports guys, I used to just tell them, here's what, here's the time you got. Just And it just, was their job to fill it and yeah. figure out what stories they Then they, they produced their own sports or weather cast, but I produced the rest of the news. Gotcha. Okay. So you're doing the, the news there and then what happens? Well, I think I did the 11 o'clock news for about three months and then they promoted me to the six o'clock news and then we won an Emmy for some newscast and I got a call from somebody in Philadelphia which was just up the road and I went and interviewed there and I was only in Harrisburg for nine months and then I went to WCAU TV in Philadelphia so definitely a, a nice jump there yeah, that's number four in the in the country yeah. and for people listening who don't know markets are rated from the biggest to the smallest and what New York city being number New York's one, one LA is two, Chicago's three, Philly's so four, four is a, a great jump in your career and you're doing news there as well. Yeah, I was a, I was a producer and then they put me in the helicopter. I was like a off air reporter and they would, they would just throw me in the helicopter and I would just go cover. I was an off air reporter, I guess you'd call it where you, nobody saw my face on TV, but I'd go out and do what a reporter did, then I'd bring back the material, write it, and then a, an anchor would read it as if they had gone out and done it. And I did that for a year, and then I asked my boss if I could, uh, uh, it was a CBS property, and I asked if I could transfer up to New York City after a year, and he said, yeah. So That easy? Yeah, it worked out fine. I mean, from the time I got to Altoona, Pennsylvania, to the time I got to WCBS in New York, it was maybe three years. So four jobs in three years. Which is pretty incredible considering yeah. some people never get there. A lot of people don't ever get there who yeah. aspire to get there. And obviously talent plays a part of it. And I like that you said you ask because a lot of people are afraid to ask. And I've talked about that a lot in here being uh, willing to put yourself out there a little bit and, and ask for a spot that may or may not be available. I did the same thing at the station I'm at now. I said, I, I know the job's not available now, but... If it ever is, I want to be the first guy in line. And guess what? When it was time, it happened. So there's a lot to be said for that. And obviously it put you to New York City. More balls than brains or whatever you want to call it, you know. But I just thought if I, yeah, I mean, you got to make your own luck. If you, you know, if you don't believe in yourself, you're never going to try it to begin with. And then once I got to WCBS in New York, I was just surrounded by these huge talents. People that went on to, you know, my my desk was basically next to Brian Williams um, desk, uh, Josh Mankiewicz, who's a Dateline correspondent. He was the city hall reporter at, at WCBS, Mike Taibbi, who went on to be an NBC news correspondent, just, and, and a lot of producers, people I still work with today. We were all in this little, little newsroom in, uh, in New York city. What was it like going from Philadelphia to New York? Was it a big jump or was it similar? It was pretty similar. I mean, I really liked Philly. The people in Philly were all when they heard I was going to New York, they're like, oh, watch out. Those New Yorkers, they'll eat you up. You know, they were just, they, Philly kind of has that chip on its shoulder about New York. But I found, you know, the New Yorkers were wonderful. Doesn't Philly have a chip on their shoulder about everything? <laughs> Not just New York. It sure <laughs> seems like it to me. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great, it was a fun experience. I, New York was really different. You know, I was about four years out of Montana at that point. So, um, and New York was kind of dangerous in 1990 when I got there. It was a different place than it is now. Yeah. So I had a little, um, a little learning curve. So 1990 New York and what happens after you go to work there? How long were you in that position and when did things change? I was a writer for a couple of years and then I produced the five o'clock news for a couple of years at WCBS in New York. And, um, Brian Williams went over to NBC kind of as the heir apparent to Tom Brokaw. And a few of us said, Hey buddy, you know, remember us? And he got, he got me some interviews at the Today Show and at Dateline and at Nightly News. And um, there was an opening at Dateline. And so I took a, I took a gigantic pay cut <laughs> betting on myself to go over to NBC as, a, as an associate producer for Dateline, which is kind of, you know, second level stuff. You're not, 
you're not calling many shots as an associate producer, but I, I thought if I could just get my foot in the door, I'd be okay. So are you executing the shots being called by the producer? Is that what the associate producer is doing or? Oh, you spend a lot of time. Uh, you'll go out and shoot stuff. You'll go out and meet people. You just do whatever you're told. But funny thing was, I only did that for about, I think six weeks maybe. And the boss called me in, uh, the executive producer of Dateline called me in and said, uh, you're a good writer, aren't you? And I said, sure, I'm a great writer. And he said, good, the writer just quit. Um, you're the new writer. Go meet Jane, Polly, and Stone Phillips. Hello. And so I got like a battlefield promotion within a couple months. What was that like? It was kind of scary because all of a sudden I was, <laughs> you know, those are two pretty big names in the TV business. And I was, I'd maybe just turned 30. Um, and I think a lot of people were wondering, you know, he didn't go to Harvard or Yale or he didn't, he hadn't worked at a network before this. Could I, could I do it? And I just kind of had to show him. And one of the things I think that really paid off was in my interview at Dateline, the boss asked me, what do you think of the writing on Dateline? I said, I don't think it's very good here. And he goes, his face was like, what? Well, and depending on what type of boss he was, I mean, it would say a lot he, he what was, his response was. He was fantastic. He goes, oh, tell me what you'd do differently. And I said, oh, Perfect. funny you should mention, I have like five things right here. <laughs> Here's five teases that I would have written differently or whatever. And he kind of, he would sit there and rock in his chair. He was very, very intense guy. And he read them. And, you know, I think he remembered that a few months later after he hired me. So I was, a, I, I worked with Jane and Stone for probably three years. And those were back in the days of Dateline when, you know, we were doing things like going to two two shows a week or three shows a week and up to five shows a week we were doing Dateline. And, um, you know, I worked with Brian Gumbel or Katie Couric. They would come down and do a show. Uh, Brokaw did a lot. I ended up working a lot with him, which was fun. Because the uh, first time I saw him on the elevator at 30 Rock, I said, hey, what's the hay price in Montana right now? And his head whipped around so fast. He was like, what? Who are you? And I, I told him and you know, we kind of hit it off with the Montana thing after that. So does he have a connection to Montana? He has a ranch. He's from South Dakota, but he had a big ranch. I think he just sold it um, down in Southern Montana near Ted Turner's ranch. So, yeah. Talking to Tom Brokaw about hay prices. Yeah. Yeah. And I did something pretty funny. Uh, not long after that, we, we had this top line system where you could, you know, it'd be like you just write Brokaw or S Bishop or whatever, and you could instantly message somebody. And I remember the first time I worked with him, um, Somebody was asking me, you know, what was it like working with Tom? And I just, sometimes my fingers work faster than my brain. And I just put in Brokaw and I said, oh, he was really nice. It was really great. We talked about Montana. Da, 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 da. And this person didn't reply to me. I thought, man, that's really weird. And about 10 minutes later, it came in. It said Brokaw. It said, I don't think this was meant for me. But since you said something nice, I won't have someone break your knees. <laughs> so was it to him? My, yeah. So I sent it to him. My, I mean, my career almost ended. You know, I don't think I breathed for like, oh God, I just sent a, you know, sent a message to Tom Brokaw and saw my career flash before my eyes. But, and you didn't even realize it until it came back to you? Yeah. Because, you know, yeah. I'm, as my wife knows, my fingers work faster than my brain a, a lot. So when it comes to working for Dateline and being behind the scenes and producing what does that entail for people that are used to staring at a nice big flat screen TV and just seeing the product? Oh boy. I mean, I'm always amazed when it comes on and you're like, wow, this was, this was just an idea in my head two years ago. And now here it is. It's a TV show. Um, it, it you know, I'll, I'll read a lot of newspapers every day. I try to, I try to work the fringes. I don't want to cover stories in New York or LA. So I'll look for stories in Pendleton, Oregon or Boise or somewhere in Montana and I'll find some, little nugget of a story that I think might work out and I'll start making calls to cops or family members. I'll FedEx them a letter and say, I'd like to talk to them about what happened. Um, you really kind of have to immerse yourself in, in the story and, and in the people's lives and then get them to trust you enough to, to talk to you about it. And once you have some of those things in place, then you can kind of, you know, dream up the concept of, you know, these are the shots we need, or this is, these are the people we need to talk to. Some, you know, sometimes you'll run into people who are better on camera and not, you know, you want to, you want to interview the, you know, the best people you can, the most articulate people you can. Um, so you have to book them, you have to book all the crews. You get, I work for with crews basically from Seattle or Minneapolis or Salt Lake. I'll bring them in, guys I've worked for 15 years or 20 years with. And we'll shoot interviews. I write all the, when, you know, I work with Keith Morrison or Josh Mankiewicz. They show up. I send them lists of questions. 
uh, a few days beforehand and they kind of download all that and just they're good interviewers. Um, and then I, then after we get all the material, you know, I have to write it. I write the first draft of it. So um, really behind the scenes, it's your job to put this thing together almost from start to finish. Yeah. I mean, you really have to, you have to have a vision for what it's going to be and you got to believe that it's all going to work out and the people are going to show up and, um, you know, and, and it's going to turn out to be a show that the bosses like and, and our viewers like. What makes a good show? Oh, I think good characters, some kind of conflict, you know, a resolution of the conflict. Um, you know, I don't think any of us got into, you know, came to work at Dateline thinking we were going to do murder all year, you know, every day, every, every year. But it's kind of what it's turned into for the past 15 years or so. And like our new slogan is Dateline, the true crime original. And we really were doing it, you know, in different ways before, before all these A&E shows, before all the discovery shows. Um, but, uh, I forgot the question. Sorry. Start to finish, <laughs> Start, I think, and all that goes into it. Yeah. And the, what makes a good story. Oh, what makes a good yes. story. Yeah. I mean, obviously you want characters you can identify with. You, you can see the characters on Dateline that, that connect with people, you know, they're, they're emotional. Obviously it's a sad thing that's, that's happened. And, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, the, there's, there's a lot of talk among our fans of, of like the, the Dateline twist or whatever. And, and my favorite kind of stories. And again, you know, keeping in mind that these are all horrible things that happen to people. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the greatest the greatest thing they they can do is trust us enough to talk about it. And I think we're very sensitive and we're honest with them and we acknowledge their pain. And when, you know, our stories all have some kind of a resolution, our viewers like resolution, they don't want things, you know, hanging. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, um, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard. What makes a good story. I mean, I, People pitch me stories all the time. Oh, this would be a great story on Dateline. And, and I, I've been there 26 years almost, and I can tell you in 10 seconds if it's a Dateline story. Is it a gut feeling? Yeah, it's just, it, you know, my favorite kind of story is if if you think you know what's happened after two or three acts of a story, and then you flip it around, and it's not what happened at all. And that's kind of the twist that I'm always looking for. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes stories... Sometimes it takes more art as a storyteller to find that twist <laughs> because, you know, a lot of our cases are husbands killing wives or wives killing husbands or people, people who are obvious suspects um, killing each other. So that's when, the, that's when the artful storytelling comes in. But, um, yeah, I can tell very quickly if it's a, if it's a Dateline story. Usually. How long does it usually take to get from the beginning when you start doing research about a situation until it actually airs on television. I mean, I've done stories that, you know, the trials ended on Monday and it's on a two hour story on Dateline Friday. Wow. You know, and that's a, it's a Herculean effort with everybody in New York and LA pitching in. But I mean, last year I had a story that I worked on for 10 years, just off and on waiting for the guy to be ready to talk about what had happened. Is that the story from 1982? Yeah, that was the, from Montana. Yeah, that was the plane crash story. That was, yeah, that was a, that was a long haul really was. Talk about that a little bit because I know that, and you just mentioned briefly that it took a long time for him to talk, but it wasn't like he just decided to talk. It didn't sound like that you guys put in a lot of work to actually get that to happen. I didn't make that many trips up to Vancouver. I made a couple, maybe I think I only made one. Keith made two or three cause he's Canadian. He's always looking for a reason <laughs> to go to Vancouver. But you know, we really worked diligently off and on for 10 years to keep him on the hook and just tell him that, you know, I think he was on probation. He had 10 years of probation or something. And even though he was in Canada, he'd been deported. Um, he had nothing to worry about. He just, in an abundance of caution, he just thought he should wait until 10 years was up. So we, you know, I'd check in with him every few months for 10 years and he finally talked to us. And it's one of my favorite stories of all time. And this is the one about the plane crash. He crashed a plane. He and his girlfriend, uh, took off from Vancouver, crashed up and crashed the plane into a lake in Northwest Montana, uh, in an effort, he said to disappear forever from kind of disapproving parents. And, uh, the plan was to hit the, hit the lake 
or hit the hit the after dark, hit the uh, lake with the plane, crash land it, have the the plane sink to the bottom, and they'd swim to the shore, and there'd be no trace of them. Well, he got out, and she didn't, and then he disappeared. He said he panicked, disappeared, ended up in Dallas, took a name off a, a gravestone of a dead baby, and it was 1982 or three, and he all he needed for a um, a birth certificate was to walk into City Hall and give him a name and date of birth, and they gave him a birth certificate. Went to college, became an you know an, an aerospace engineer, um, started his own company, traveled internationally, all under this fake name, and then he he fell in love with a woman and told her the truth, and she turned him in. That's all. I mean, <laughs> you think about twists and turns. I mean, that's almost unbelievable. But I guess it goes to show you that you can't start over if you if you do it the. It's not the right way. I mean, well, it's definitely a wrong way. But different world back then. I mean, we couldn't. You couldn't create an identity like he did. Yeah. And uh, he was on America's Most Wanted. They they put him on like six or eight times, and they could never find him. Um, you know, that's why I talked to him for ten years because it was just that story that you're just like, this is. I got to tell this story. I'm not going to just let it go. Did you ever think that he was actually going to talk? Oh yeah. No, I, I had no doubt he would eventually. Yeah. Cause we weren't going to let him off the hook <laughs> until he talked. <laughs> yeah. And obviously yeah. it worked out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We did a two hour on it in October of 2018 and I think it's going to rerun in a few weeks. Oh really? I think that's so. great. I know I watched it when it was on the first time <laughs> and I try and catch as many episodes as I can. Dateline stories are never over. I mean, I've been in the, I've been, uh, in Greece in the middle of the night, turn on the TV and there's a dateline running. So, you know, when they just run them and rerun them and we just got renewed for syndication. We, you know, I think you can watch it on channel five here in, here in Medford mm-hmm. at two in the afternoon. And, uh, so it's kind of a machine, the Dateline machine. How many stories are you working on at any given time? Oh, between five and ten. You know, things things take so long to develop. You'll hear about a story, and then you know it'll take them six months to charge somebody, or you know, a trial will take two years. So you try to have enough things in different stages that you're always you always have something that's you know close to the end, so you can. Uh, so you can get some stuff on the air, but you really can't do more than about two or three stories a year. So what does your average day look like? I'm sure they're all different. Well, I work out of my house. I mean, I live in Medford. I've lived in Southern Oregon since 2002. So um, I've worked worked at home for going on 18 years. So I just get up and sit down and go to work and, you know, read newspapers, do whatever I need to do. And then I'm on the road I don't know. I don't know how much, maybe a third of the time, you know, going out, talking to people. Sometimes you really have to show up and talk to people in person. You can't do it over the phone. Um, And then when we're actually in production, I'll go out and I'll be gone for a week. Usually Keith will, I'll come in on a Monday with the crews and Keith will fly in late Monday or Tuesday. We'll do interviews all day, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We'll fly home. Um, And then at some point, I'll write it and then I'll send the crew back once I talk to the editors in New York about how, you know, what shots we need and stuff like that. And then I'll either go back with the crew and they'll shoot B-roll for four or five days. It takes a lot of B-roll to cover a two hour show. Um, but you know, I'm probably home two thirds of the time. I think, I don't know. That's, that's a rough idea. Good enough. Yeah. Yeah. I was just curious how that works because I wasn't, I'm not really aware of what happens in that industry and how that all works and how many of people in your position actually can work for from home or how that works. So it, was your company pretty good about it? Is that something you asked them to do or is that yeah. a normal thing? Nah, you know, I grew up in Montana. I didn't want to, I didn't want to live back there anymore. I was burned out on it. Had a couple of kids, didn't want them to grow up in New Jersey. And so kind of threw a dart at the map and we came out here. I'd always, it's funny, I'd always heard about this little banana belt area uh, of Oregon. And you know where I grew up, you know, it was just cold all the time. Snow up to your eyeballs and, and uh, 40, 50 below in the winter. And I just, all I could dream about was a warmer place. And I'd always heard of Medford, Oregon as this little banana belt. So I just said, let's try that. So we did. Did you come out here first or did you just move out here? Uh, once. I came, yeah. came, visited once and found a house in Jacksonville and... So I moved from suburban New York, uh, New Jersey, to Jacksonville. 
What was that like? Oh, I loved it. I mean, I just felt like I was back in Conrad. You know, I just, I just instantly loved it here. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, it, it was warm. It wasn't New York. I mean, I'd spent 15 years back east at that point. I'd been in New York during 9-11. I'd worked my ass off during 9-11 and not gone home for five or six or seven days or whatever. And I was just over it. I didn't want to commute for an hour and a half each way. And uh, so I, I made it happen. What was it like being in New York on September 11th? It was scary. You know, it's easy to look back now and go, oh, they were just after that, 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 the, the World Trade Centers. But the truth is, we all got evacuated from Rockefeller Center. We didn't know if they were, you know, going to take down other large buildings, large famous buildings or what. So it's just kind of scary. It's all a blur at this point because we did a show every night for five or six nights. And so slept on the floor, went down to the NBC store and bought some sweats. Nobody showered or actually sometimes we'd, we'd run up to the NBC uh, health club on the seventh floor and shower and sleep on your sleep on the floor or sleep on your, you know, couch in your office or whatever. Well, I mean, it's what you live for. It's like if you're a news person, that's, that's, why you do what you do to, yeah. be, to be there in times like that. Probably don't always expect to be in the middle of it though, or be the news. And everyone in New York was, was a part of the news that day. Yeah, it really was. Yeah. Something you never forget. So out to Oregon and, and get settled out here and, and been a while. And that's how I got to meet you along the way Yeah, uh, in a roundabout way. Thanks to small towns, which you're, Beautiful wife is sitting here, uh, hopefully enjoying our podcast here. You doing all right over there? You need anything? No. You're being very quiet. <laughs> um, but I had a couple notes here, and I wanted to bounce around just a little bit, if you don't mind. I wanted to know, or I, I kind of know already, but I, I wanted to just confirm that this is an actual thing and for you to tell everyone else what your connection to Pearl Jam is. <laughs> oh, God. So when I was 12 or so, two or three of my buddies in Conrad, um, we, also, we started a band. And I think the first song we learned was Johnny Be Good. I was the singer. And Mike May was the guitar player. And Jack Lee was the drummer. And he's now a principal of Henley High School over in Klamath Falls. Small world, huh? Yeah, it's really, really funny. And uh, so we started this band and we played. We were called High Voltage. We named ourselves after an ACDC song. And we were tried to be the knack. We, it was like 1978 when they were famous. So we had white shirts and black, uh, little skinny black ties. And we had an agent. And we, he, you know, we played in bars when we were like 15. And we played in proms. And anyway, all over, all over Montana. And then we, we all went to school together in Missoula. So we kept the band together. And a couple people came and went. And I think, I think when we were sophomores, um, we needed a bass player for some reason. Can't even remember why. And there was this kid from Big Sandy, Montana named Iggy, who was kind of into more into punk rock than we were. But he's a friend of ours. We'd played high school basketball against him. And uh, we kind of knew him, you know, like, like all of us small town kids did. And uh, he, he said to Mike May, the guitar player, I, I think I'd like to try out for your band. And so Mike went over and listened to him and showed him a couple things. And, and Mike said, well look, you're, you got a lot of heart, but you're not really quite ready to, to, to be part of this band yet. So keep practicing. And, and you know, I don't know how the rest of the conversation went. You Probably you, not well. He, well, <laughs> no, he was nice and he probably knew that he, you know, wasn't quite ready, but, um, so that would have been about 1983 or 1984. And six years ago, that was six years later, that was Jeff Ament in Pearl Jam in the movie Singles. So I'd say that he was a little more serious about music than the rest of us. Well, who would have thought? Our little brush with rock and roll fame, yeah. A lot of my friends still go to all the Pearl Jam concerts. He's great. He, he you know, invites them backstage, and he's just a wonderful guy. He's done amazing things, especially on Indian reservations in Montana. He's built skate parks uh, for kids in small towns all across Montana, so... That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, so many times you see these guys who get to be so big, they kind of forget where they're from. They don't ever go home. They don't care about where they're from. And that means a lot. I know specifically for the small towns themselves, because 
as you know, small towns don't have a lot of resources. So yeah. when you have a guy like that come back and build a skate park, I mean, who knows? There could be the next Tony Hawk skating out there. And if it wasn't for him coming back to build that skate park, they never have that opportunity. It's just, it's just a, a Montana thing. I'm so proud of him and everybody is in Montana, but I'm more proud of the way he's handled it. Yeah. And all the good he's done. Yeah. There's so much you can do with it. And uh, a lot of times it's little things that people don't even know about that you can do to make a huge impact. And, yeah, obviously he's had a pretty big impact. Yeah, maybe we can, sure. maybe you can get him here in the garage next time. Hey, Small it's time. open. If you have a connection, <laughs> we'll get him in here. I just thought that was cool. I'm like, man, I would. You just never know. They call it what seven degrees of separation. Sometimes it's not seven. Sometimes it's two. Right. But uh, hmm. tell me about the Olympics and what it's been like to cover the Olympics. I've only been to two. I was at 2004. I went to Athens. Um, at the time, they they always take a few Dateline people or hard news people um, just in case something bad happens. And I remember the first, first night of the 2004 Olympics in Athens, I was assigned with a reporter and a live truck on a hill overlooking the uh, stadium where the opening ceremonies were. And we were there just in case they said the state, in case the stadium blew up, they would, they would go live to us over on the, on the hill. Just in case it blows up. That's what they told. Wow. (laughs) What an assignment. So, yeah. Nothing happened. So we sat there and drank wine and watched the sun go down. That's all I remember about it. It was, which is not you know, a bad gig. No, the alternative does not sound appealing to no, me the, at all. The rest of the time we, you know, I met wrestlers from Iraq and did stories like, you know, feature stories, which is a nice break from murder. And I went to, I went to Pyeongchang last year and, uh, I'm going to be in Tokyo this summer. So so when they put you on an assignment like that and you're hanging out in the van or drinking wine, watching the sunset, whatever that is, are you looking for opportunities for stories? You talk about the wrestlers. Is there like, can you fill downtime with that? Is that what you're trying to do? Or are you, well, I've worked for a, a little unit in the Olympics, uh, unit called, um, uh, the sports desk. And, um, if you watch during the Olympics, I think on channel five, the, every night they'll do a show from seven to seven thirty before seven thirty to eight before the primetime Olympics uh, start, and it's it's feature stories, it's um, you know hometown stories, stuff like that. Um, that's what we do. I just did a bunch of just did a bunch of little features, you know, two or three minute features about the guys who take care of the ice, you know, for the figure skaters. Or I hung out a lot with Sean White. I got lucky and hung out with Sean White a lot last time. And did two or three stories about him and his little protege, um, Toby something. I can't remember his name now, but, um, you know, just, just fun stuff. So a nice change of pace for it you was, to do that. Yeah, it was really nice. And, you know, you go to the Olympics, it kind of just restores your faith in humanity. You, I, I went to everything I could. I went to the pentathlon and felt like I was the only person speaking English in the whole stadium. I just took it all in. And uh, it's really beautiful to see how everybody comes together. And um, I love sports. I mean, that's, I'm a huge, huge football fan. And, you know, I'll wear my Kansas City Chiefs uh, shirt somewhere and somebody will go, hey, Chiefs, you know, like that. And that's to me is what sports brings people together, like, like music or sports. Those are the things that always bring people together. And it's, it's really fun to be at, the, at those things like the Olympics. I'm hoping to, I'm hoping I can, they only hire you uh, one at a time. So, you know, if I do okay in Tokyo, I assume maybe I'll go to Beijing after that, Paris is what I'm hoping for. and Just keep the streak alive. Yeah, yeah we'll see where it goes from there. But. Did you ever think you'd be doing something like that when you were back in small town Montana that you'd be at the Olympics? Well, I knew I'd be doing something that wasn't in Conrad, Montana, but I didn't know what it was. I just had no clue. I was just kind of this little weird kid who liked to dream and write and sit there in my room and play with my football cards and just escape the cold weather in Montana. So yeah, I always saw myself somewhere else. I, I, you know, Anna, my wife is from, uh, from San Diego area and, and we've been down to Disneyland with the kids and things like that. And I, I still can't believe that I got to go to Disneyland. I mean, that was such a big dream that was out of reach for me as a kid that, you know, even now I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, just kind of pinch myself when I get to do stuff like that. And it sounds stupid, but it's just a product of where I was, where I was and, and how far away everything seemed. Um, it's not the same world. The kids now, you know, they, they see everything's at their fingertips. They, they can go anywhere. We just, 
we just didn't dream that big, you know? Have you had a chance to reflect at all back on some of the things that you've been a part of or been able to do or uh, any accomplishments along the way? Well, I mean, I still remember when I didn't have, when I just stared at my resume on this blank page, like, I got one job on this. What am I going to do, you know? And I think that's a that's something that a lot of people can identify with. Like, where am I going? And now, 35 years later, I look at it and, and you know, I've covered, I've been at basically every major news story for the for decades, from the World Trade Center bombing to Oklahoma City bombing to Columbine, 9-11. I covered Katrina. I've covered more tornadoes and hurricanes and school shootings and theater shootings and you know, major news stories um, than I ever could have dreamed of. But yeah, it doesn't seem like 35 years. It's all been so much fun. I said to, I said to Keith Morrison one time, I was complaining about work and he said, Shane, they pay us to fly around and tell stories. And, you know, I always, anytime I get down about work or whatever, I always remember that. And he's from Saskatchewan and I'm from Montana and we both know we could be digging ditches or you know, driving combines or something else. Yeah. And we're very not. easily so, too. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and you know, the, I, my cousin who has the farm, he's my hero. I, he's, uh, he could have done anything, but he stayed at the family farm. And those are the people that are my heroes. Yeah. Without those people, a lot of us aren't eating. Um, there's so many unsung heroes out there. Uh, when I was talking to my grandpa and he was talking about building interstate five and, all these different things he did along the way. And you just, you know, just stop for a second and think about all those people. And I try and remind myself of that same thing when it gets busy and hectic and there's all this stress put on us for different things that, man, I could be out there freezing right now or, or moving those sprinkler pipes that we talked about earlier. And a lot of that stuff's tough work. Well, whatever you do, you know, try to bring honor to it. Try to, try to do your best and, um, you know, we all have different gifts and my gift, if I have one is just to be able to write and, um, you know, I'm lucky I have that one because I'm not sure what the other ones are. <laughs> Talk a little bit about the success you've had with getting people out of prison that are innocent. Well, uh, Keith Morrison and I both feel strongly that part of our you know, part of our job is, you know, we're always seeking the truth. And one of the best ways we can seek the truth is to, is to right wrongs. And we started with a story in Montana about 15 years ago, a story about a guy named Barry Beach. Um, back in the days where you had to really convince people that a false confession could happen. This guy had, had, had confessed to, to a murder. Um, and it's a very long convoluted story, but um, we were the first ones to bring attention to him um, he got out, he got put back in with court rulings and reversals and appeals. And um, the Montana legislature changed a law basically for him um, to make it easier for him to get a pardon from the governor. And he did, and he's he's out and, you know, has his own company and living a great life. He was the first one that we did. And, and uh, I think we've played a role in freeing six people uh, now, one in Oregon two in Idaho, one in Montana, and two in Michigan. And uh, I'm a judge for the Innocence Project's uh, media awards every year. I just, it's kind of where my heart is. Um, you know, I don't think any of us can understand what it's like to be accused and put in prison for something you didn't do. So I'd like to do more of those stories. Um, is that something you know. you're actively looking for as people who may be in prison and they're innocent? Or is it... A situation where you just happen to to come across someone who you think is and end up finding out after you do more research I don't know you know I got a lot of after after doing this as long as I have I have a lot of people who call me and tell me about stories you know from the innocence project in in you know New York nationally or in Montana or Idaho or um, Centurion Ministries is another one um, that I've worked with uh, and the, the Centurion Ministries is the, uh, the new John Grisham book, The Guardians, that's based on the guy who founded Centurion, who's a very a good friend of mine. So 
if, if you're plugged in, into that world, you know, they, they bubble to the surface. And if you catch them kind of at the right time, um, where, where media exposure can make a difference. Um, and that's really kind of tricky to catch the wave at the right time to, to have somebody moving through the court system. And then you, you know, you can uh, put some exposure on it. Um, so yeah, I'm always looking for things, but you know, it's not something that they want me to do full time. Um, they want me to do other stuff too. So it's just kind of a little side hustle or whatever you want to call it. Is that because it's not as appealing or flashy or? Well, I mean, if you're, if you're looking for two hour shows, in my opinion, the, the wrongful convictions are some of the best material you have, because again, like I said earlier, you think you know the story and then wham, it turns all over. Um, but you know, it's just, you know, we all work for somebody and my bosses like a small percentage of our stories to be wrongful conviction stories. So, you know, it's, it's their call what I do. What has it been like? You talked about the Olympics being a nice break and, you know, bringing back, restoring your faith in humanity and probably because you see all of these negative things, what has it been like? And what do you think the impact has been on your life? living in a world where a lot of your stories are about negative things. Yeah, Is that hard to do? It, I don't know. I, I can put up walls with the best of them, but I don't, you know, I've been asked that question a million times and maybe, maybe Anna's a better judge of it, but um, I don't go home and think about it. Like I can look at autopsy photos and dive into a, a story and, you know, watch interviews with criminals and things like that. And then I kind of shut it off and, walk out of the, walk out of the office and and just set it aside till the next day it's not something i focus on or i did i did have a period uh back in the late 90s and early 2000s when i was really into serial killers cuz i was working on a story about serial killers and um i just learned everything i read every book i could um the mind hunter tv series on netflix um i got to be pretty good friends with john douglas and uh he was one of the original profilers and I was just kind of immersed myself in that world for five, six, seven years. And then I kind of felt like I knew as much as I wanted to know about it. And then I set it aside. So, um, I like it. It's, it's like any job. I mean, you know, it can get a little heavy. Um, I don't know. I, I, maybe I'm not the best person to answer. What's it <laughs> like? I, I'm sure everyone's asked you what it's like working with some of the personalities that you get to work with. And obviously Keith Morrison, one of the biggest. <laughs> yeah. He's a delight. He's just one of the best human beings you'll ever meet. He's just been one of the honors of my life to ride shotgun with Keith for all these years. So was it you that talked him into doing the thing for the university of Montana where he was, was it a fight song or what, what was he doing? Well, we, we had just finished an interview in Mont in Missoula, Montana, where the university is. And the person we'd interviewed was a reporter, you know, 15 years ago when this murder happened. And so she agreed to come on and, and do that and, and be interviewed about the story that we were, we were doing for Dateline. And at the end of the interview, she just said, um, Hey, do you think Keith would say the words to the fight song? Because I think it'd be fun to just, put up during homecoming week and Keith just went, Oh, fine, whatever, you know? And he did it and kind of blew up into something, I guess. Yeah. He seemed like a good sport. I know that when we had the chance to interview him, thanks to you, that he was just a lot of fun to talk to and he didn't seem like he took himself too seriously. Oh, he's just, he's delightful. I don't know. You know, he's been, he came to my wedding. He and Josh Mankowitz came to our wedding um, in Carlsbad, California a few years ago. And they're just, just wonderful people. I don't, there's no ego. There's no, you know, he, Keith work. I think Keith worries even now. Am I working hard enough? Am I doing enough? And I'm like, well, you're kind of the show, <laughs> you know, but he's just, he'll never, he'll never get over that uh, kind of feeling like, am I working hard enough? And he doesn't take himself seriously at all. So yeah, it doesn't even seem like he has to work at it. And I think that's probably the case for most people who are really good at what they do. It, they give off the appearance that it's not that difficult, but to me, it just seems like he could roll into the garage here and he's just, he's just Keith Morrison. He just is. Yeah. I mean, there's, an, he's exactly the person you see on TV. If he was sitting here, he's exactly the same. There's never, 
no, no other Keith Morrison has ever showed up. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Because with some people, they may have three different personalities. You don't know which one you're going to get. Yeah. And that's but. part of the reason. I mean, I've worked at NBC for 20, going on 26 years. And part of the reason I've never looked for work anywhere else is because I love everybody I work with. It's a cliche, but it's a family. You know, we all just look out for each other and we're all pretty good at what we do. And, and, um, there's no, no ego involved. I, I think you hear about TV people with egos and it's gotta be all about them. And it's just never been like that at, at Dateline. What's your favorite moment in the 25 years working there? Oh boy. You can give me a top three if there's a couple. Oh boy. And take your time. That's, uh, We're not in a hurry. Can't take my time. It's the radio, so you have to keep talking, right? No, so this isn't the radio. We can podcast. talk as long as we want. Okay. Let me get a drink. <laughs> you think about it. Top three, huh? You still good over there? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I'll always be really proud of the work we did on 9-11. I don't think that's... I think you, if you're a journalist and something like that happens, you want to rise to the occasion. I think we did. Um. I don't know. I, you know, I have favorite stories. That one I told you about with the airplane. I did a story once um, out on Atu, which is at the end of the Aleutian chain in Alaska. Flew out there and did a story on the World War II battle um, between the U.S. and Japan that killed 500 and some American soldiers. Uh, you know, kind of the U.S. the battle that the World War II that nobody's heard about. Um, we did that 15 or 20 years ago and somebody just wrote a book on it this year. Like it was some big, uh, some big discovery, <laughs> some new discovery. Yeah. A new old discovery. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just, it's all been, it's all been just an honor to be a part of. I mean, you know, the media takes a lot of hits these days and I know that we've never done anything but try to report the truth. We've never tried to bend it. I've been in meetings at the highest levels in every situation and nobody's ever done anything but tried to report it accurately and and play it straight and I'm really proud of that. Well, it's been great talking to you. I'm going to wrap it up here pretty quick cuz we're almost at an hour and I don't want to keep you too long, but what would you say to the kid in small town America that was just like yourself and thinks they might want to do something and they're just not sure if they should give it a shot or not? Well, I think the main thing is don't sell yourself short. You know, we tend to think if you're from a small town, you're not as smart as the kids from from bigger towns. But if you stay humble and work hard, and those are two things you learn very very early on in a in a small town. Work hard, stay humble, don't sell yourself short. I think you can do anything you want, and uh, it's been a fun ride. Yeah, I'd say so. It's pretty fortunate. I would say for 25 years, you know, in the same place, it's just such an awesome run. Uh, And it sounds like you just absolutely love working there, which is sometimes the hardest thing to find is a great place to work. You know, it can sound like the best job in the world, but the people that you surround yourself with make the job what it is. It's the people. Yeah. I'm going to, I kind of live in fear that, you know, it's going to end. I know it has to end someday, but I don't want to, I don't, I don't ever want to not go out on another story with Keith or Josh or go back to New York and see all my friends. And I just, just, uh, it's been such a hoot. When does your next episode air? Do you know? I don't know. I got, Oh, I probably have six or eight things I'm kind of juggling right now. And you know, we'll see. It's always, you know, and I could also get a call tomorrow that says go to New Mexico. There's a trial ending and we want that on the air in three weeks. So you know, nothing like a little pressure, never a dull moment. Yeah. Well, what did we not cover? Hmm. Was my wife your babysitter? I think she was like a sub sub baby. I don't, I don't think she was, she, she, <laughs> she was more of my cousin's favorite or That's my right. cousins were her favorites. And I think we were like on the other list. Is that accurate? No. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I think that she's probably accurate. Whoever called. Well, I know that. I know. No, not maybe not favorite, but didn't everyone have like their their like like ours is right down the street here. So like that's the go to, and like we had my cousin right, and so everyone yeah, and you're 
Exactly. And so if one was taken, then you went to the next one. It's kind of like a football draft or something. But um, hey, your she sister did live right down the street from us. Yeah. Your sister still does her hair. Still? I haven't seen you there in a while. Oh, I a long time. I used to see you every once in a while, but I know I got to get back too. But uh, I mean, I just think that's a, you know, I go home to Montana and I'll see one person and, you know, it's just like, just like this, where you mention one name and somebody was somebody's babysitter. And that's why I love living here. And, you know, your family's very important to her and very important to us. And, and it's just fun to be a part of it. It was funny a couple of weeks ago after my grandpa was in for the podcast, someone that I work with like professionally, not in our building. So one of my clients, he works for one of my clients, advertising clients. And he said, I didn't know that was your grandpa. Like mm. you're okay. Like I, I don't know what to tell you. Like <laughs> he, He's been, he's been him for 39 years, but I guess, you know, if you don't, you don't go around telling everyone, like, I don't think of it. I just, it just is. So, right. um, but, uh, it's a pretty nice thing. Yeah, it is for sure. Surrounded by a lot of good people. So, yeah. so that's what helps make it go. And that's what helped put me in the position I'm in. So, um, yeah, it's great having you guys over though. Thanks for coming over. Thank Thanks you. for making time. Cause I know that you're very, very busy oh, yeah. and have a lot of things to do. And I know we all are, but, um, I really appreciate it and I really been looking forward to it. So wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much. Apple podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher. I don't even know wherever you get podcasts. It's available. Garage talk podcast.com. And, uh, that should do it. We'll be back here again soon in the garage episode 18 with Shane Bishop. Thanks again, Shane. Thank you.